happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 157 on December 3rd, 2019. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus, located in fabulous Missoula, Montana. And joining me this evening, as always, good evening, Dr. West Friar, how are you tonight? Good evening, Jason. I am well, and I appreciate you adjusting the schedule tonight so that we can be here. And we've been off a week, so there's a little, you know, few more, few more links have stacked up. I am the technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School, and we are going to be picking up a new dog tomorrow, which Ooh. happened a lot faster than we had anticipated. And so anyway, that would be the reason for our adjusted show. So we will probably have cute dog pictures to, sh you know, share an endless supply. And my daughter was saying she may be setting up a special Instagram for said puppy. So, yeah. Yep. Yep. I'm familiar with that phenomenon. We got a new dog earlier this year and we were actually going through photos tonight looking for, for uh, Christmas card photos. And as it turns out, a serious percentage of our photos feature a dog on top of me. Uh, he is turning our dog. We don't know what kind of dog, some kind of mutt. Um, and his name is Louie, or we call him Lou. But Lou was supposed to max out at, at 35 pounds, and he's now rounding up 60. So he's a big dog, and he's a big, awkward teen that likes to bump into things and thinks that you really like to be jumped on. So um, if we're looking for cute dog photos, we could always, you know, match up on a competition. Absolutely. Well, what is this little show we're here to do tonight, Jason, that I'm well, sure lots of people dogs. were just, it was a major thing missing from their week last week to not have sure. a show. Well, first of all, thanks to our loyal listeners that noticed last week that we weren't around. We did tweet that information out, but Wes and I took Thanksgiving off, and I'm sure we we're both very thankful to have the extra time with our families and engaging um, with those that we love. But usually on Wednesday nights, not Tuesday nights, but Wednesday nights, we broadcast the Edic Situation room, which is a podcast that takes a look at news headlines from the technology world, and we kind of shoot them through an educational lens. Both Wes and I have a lot of experience integrating technology in classrooms. We've served in various roles that are kind of tech-driven in education, and we like to chit-chat uh, for no other reason, really, than it helps us process the extraordinarily fast changes that are happening in the technology world, especially as it relates to its impact on education. You can find links from every week's show at our website, edtech.sr dot com. Uh, we also uh, post show notes there so you can see just what we talked about. Or if you're curious about what we almost talked about, we have a massive Google Doc. It's got to be up to, to hundreds of pages by now uh, that shows every single link we've looked at in the past 157 episodes. So that document's located at that website. Uh, tonight, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in the tech world. As, as Wes noted, we are now two weeks without a show, so lots stacking up. I do want to start off with some breaking news, and usually I would queue up a bad breaking news bumper, so if this goes shung gung 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 Breaking news from, this is from the Washington Post just a few hours ago, Google co-founder Larry Page cedes control of Alphabet to Sundar Pichai, which means the original founders of Google are no longer in charge of Alphabet, which is the holding company that holds Google and all its associated properties. And while I don't think this will have any immediate impact impact on education. I do think it's interesting that they promoted from within and Sundar Pichai, who at one point was in charge of the Android project, then in charge of Google and now in charge of the entire Alphabet organization. And I have to say that at least from my perspective as kind of the Google guy on the show and Android Chrome OS guy, this because he has had a very clear vision for both Chrome OS and Android. Um, I think that they both have uh, done very well under his tutelage and leadership. And while I think many other properties uh, may be struggling a little bit as we go through the so-called technology correction, as we mentioned on the show, I, I, I do feel as if Android and Chrome OS are in much better position than they were just a few years back and, and are both excellent, vibrant platforms of which to build interesting technology tools. So, Wes, I know that you're you're a lot in the Apple camp, but obviously you have a lot of, of, of toes in Google stuff as well. Any thoughts about a leadership change over at Mother Alphabet? 
you know, I think Google is going to stay the course and, uh, you know, I don't, I would not foresee dramatic changes. Um, I've, I've been impressed. You know, we've, we've talked about a lot Sundar Pichai's keynotes <clears throat> at the, uh, Google IO events that happen each year. And, uh, he seems to, you know, be a visionary and a savvy, savvy guy and, uh, an able leader. And so I, wouldn't wouldn't expect this to be a lot of of change for Google. So, yep. um, but it's uh, you know interesting as far as like a, a classroom connection. You know who our kids recognize, and you know the role in which technology leaders uh, you know play an increasing influential role. So I think probably most of my fifth and sixth graders are going to recognize, um, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg. Um, I, and and then um, oh, who's our Amazon Jeff Bezos, you know? Um, but uh, I don't know if Sundar Pichai would be somebody that would be as readily recognizable, but probably probably should be. I don't know. Yeah. About, what? Yeah. What was um, uh, the A- Apple CEO Tim Cook? Wasn't he called Tim Apple by someone? Uh, yeah. You know, if he would be as readily recognized. But anyway, these are these are important people to think to not only you know know but to think about their roles uh, to you know discuss with students the the rise of this you know billionaire class uh, of folks that just you know the the fortunes they control and the power that they wield through the companies that they lead. Um, you know, some people would say is unprecedented. I don't know Rockefeller and Standard Oil, pretty pretty big, you know, influence there. But these are the new uh, the new tech giants, and so ho- hopefully he will. Uh, I think Google officially changed from do no evil, like that's no longer their mantra. But anyway, hopefully they'll continue that. But hey, surveillance capitalism, I'm afraid, is here to stay. And whether or not they're going to formally talk about that, that. That's their mantra, but they're going to continue to do all kinds of, of, I think, great things and give, give us powerful tools that let us, you know, use technology in transformative ways to communicate, learn and share. So, but as we'll talk about in our tech correction section, they still have a lot of things to figure out. Sure. Well, and then there's one other article that is really about kind of the last 96 hours. Uh, Black Friday was Friday. Cyber Monday was yesterday. I did read this morning. It is now known as Cyber Week because apparently many of the online retailers are extending discounts throughout the week. So I have to start with, Wes, do you have anything to report Black Friday, Cyber Monday wise? Did you partake in the commercial uh, 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 multitude of products available. Feeding frenzy. Yes, good point. So yes, we did. Uh, we actually spent the holiday in Dallas or the Dallas area with my wife's family, and that was nice. Whenever we visit Dallas, it is you know an amped up consumer experience, and uh, the you hotel wait, we stayed in was actually right by the outlet mall in mm-hmm. Allen, Texas, mm-hmm. and so for parking, that you know proved to be exciting, but. You know, there were a few of the stores we went in. One of them, it just felt like a hurricane was coming in and everyone was just, you know, grabbing all the spam and milk off the shelves that they possibly could. It was wild, but we did find some some good deals. So I have given up my Inspector Gadget look that I've had for over two decades, I think, with my, you know, trench coat for a very... Steeply discounted wool coat, and we found you know some good stuff for our son, and uh, you know found found some technology things as well. So, how about you all? Were you were, were you holed up at the uh, the Lewis and Clark cabin, you know, offline and away from all of of this silliness? I was not. I was on the grid this year because I spent the holiday with my parents in in Great Falls, Montana, who are very much on the grid. But I will say I did partake in one purchase that um, did show up on Monday, and I did buy a Pixel Slate, which is the Chrome OS. Um, uh, uh, tablet from Google. And I agree with analysis from the good folks at uh, Chrome Unboxed. Uh, their lead writer said that really at the price that they were selling these things at, it, it would suddenly made sense economically. And so they were half off, which included a keyboard case and a pixel pen. And I got the M3 model and it's early times, uh, right now, but it's, it, it, I've been playing around with it temporarily at work and it's, it's pretty great. So, um, I will report on it in the future. Uh, as we reported in, in the past on this podcast, Google has, has stopped making 
or and stop developing tablets and they're going to stick with uh, uh, convertibles or laptop form factors only. But there are other manufacturers in this area, including HP and Lenovo, both of which have uh, Chrome OS tablets. So it's so far, it's a great device and super portable thin and light and still pretty speedy because it's got that M3 chip with 8 gigs of RAM, but uh, I, I did take advantage of that, which usually I don't usually partake in in, in Black Friday stuff, but um, it was too much to resist. Awesome. Now, that's the original model for that Pixel Slate, right? Or right they, yeah, that's last they, year's, yeah, last year's model. probably not going to rev it? No, no, no. The, and in fact, the, uh, the, they've been really clear that although they, they will continue to support it through, I think it's 2025, because that's how long they, you know, support Chrome devices. They, they don't have any active developers anymore locally to look at, you know, uh, spec hardware to try to build around a tablet experience. And I think that's kind of sad, actually, because I, my, you know, 25, 30 minutes of experience with this thus far, it did really did feel like an iPad and both in build quality and in, in functionality, but it's got the full web browser experience. So you kind of what the I, iPad is advertising now, right? The full desktop style browser on iOS 13 and that that, you know, provides a lot of functionality that, that, that makes that portable, the portability of that also very powerful. So we'll see. I, I'm not, um, you know, I, I obviously I, I own some Chromebooks. Uh, that that's been part a few of my, devices around the knife for home, right? Yeah, yeah. That that's uh, part of my status as 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 a dink double income no kid means I have a little more portable income than the typical uh, American does there. But uh, you know, I I will see. So I I'm I so far I like it, and um, we shall see. So. On a personal note relating devices, I have gone back to the iPhone 7 and given my uh, daughter, our daughter, my uh, iPhone 11 Pro. And so wow. she is uh, taking a photography class and she just always, I had to really justify this, especially to my wife, but uh, she, you know, third child, she just, you know, has never gotten anything new. So anyway, that's kind of cool. So we'll see what amazing things she creates with her camera in her yeah. second trimester class. Um, so anyway, it's, and I'm, I'm actually also going caseless. So I have been influenced by a friend Ooh. at school who you know, believes the Steve Jobs purest way. Steve never intended us to have these cases on these devices. So anyway, thankfully I have not, not dropped it. And uh, yeah, back, back in action with, the Apple device. And yeah, it's not, it's interesting how now that we've gone, we've kind of plateaued at this level or whatever, anyway, in terms of smartphones, um, it, it's really not that different of an experience. I mean, the, the, the camera certainly was phenomenal, but yeah. you know, the actual day-to-day -day function, I miss having a little extra storage. I'll say that because I've gone down to a 32 gig device, but anyway, those are all surmountable things. And I cleaned out a bunch of apps that I really didn't need, right? We all there you go. Need, so. All right. Okay. Well, lots of extra articles. Wes, where would you like to start tonight on our more topical stuff? Well, we don't normally go to Rolling Stone, but I think I'd like to, to go there first. So uh, we've got a lot of topics as always, and I think this one is under uh, the tech correction. This is uh, Rolling Stone from November 25th, and the title is, That Uplifting Tweet You Just Shared a Russian Troll Sent It. Here's what Russia's 2020 disinformation operations look like, according to two experts on social media and propaganda. And this is from Darren Linville and Patrick Warren. Um, although, no, I think I put this one under media literacy rather than tech correction. Um, I'll read just two, two paragraphs, an initial one and then a, one that's a little bit further in. Internet trolls don't troll, not the professionals at least. Professional trolls don't go on to social media to antagonize liberals or belittle conservatives. They are not narrow-minded, drunk, or angry. They don't lack basic English skills. They certainly aren't somebody sitting on their bed that weighs 400 pounds, as the president once put it. Your stereotypical trolls do exist on social media, but the amateurs aren't a threat to Western democracy. And then as you scroll down on the uh, article, uh, the authors say, we've spent the past two years studying online disinformation and building a deep understanding of Russia's strategies, tactics, and impact. Working from data Twitter is publicly released. We've read Russian tweets until our eyes bled. Looking at the range of behavioral signals, we've begun to develop procedures to identify disinformation campaigns and have worked with Twitter to suspend accounts, yada, yada, yada. And basically, you know, <laughs> this is a grim picture for our, our elections. We have not had substantial change in a regulation you know, perspective on any of this. And, and, 
you know, there's there's a lot of folks that have been, you know, arguing against this idea that Russia, you know, interfered. And it's, uh, you know, look at the researchers like let's trust scientists. Let's trust academic researchers that are spending their whole careers, you know, focusing on this kind of stuff. Uh, the kind of propaganda that Russia has been doing for a long time is now at a completely different level because the tools that they have available to them are at a different level. And, you know, it's they're literally targeting your parents and mine and, you know, all older adults in, in the United States who use Facebook. And, you know, maybe they're targeting kids, but, you know, the ability to insert uh, links and and influence people's emotions to pull pull levers to push buttons. You know, it is really really eye opening. And so, I think the media literacy importance of this is huge. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure. You know, we haven't decided these like parent university sessions. We did one on screen time in the fall. We basically just did one. But that's one of the things that we need to kind of get together before the end of of December to look at and. Um, I think I don't know what we would call it, but I really want to do something like this for parents because, you know, being aware of the ways social media is weaponized uh, to, you know, meet the objectives of nation states as well as non-state actors. It's it's something that it's not a tinfoil hat thing. And so anyway, came in this article and these are researchers that I you know don't know by name. Um I think it's I think it's a big deal. So, Jason, how will you over the holidays help your friends and family, you know, become more aware of uh, the hazards posed by by disinformation? Or, or, or what do you do? Because, yeah, I'll be in Spain. So ah. um, the best I could do is spread my own disinformation campaign from from Spain. But, you know, I, I, I it's, it's funny you should say that because I do think that that is a part of this conversation. I'm not sure we have enough that we are under some obligation to connect with our family. And especially if they're spreading information that 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 looks like it's of dubious sources. And, and looking at that Rolling Stone article, one of the things that, that was my takeaway is, is how much extraordinary that's happening that you probably probably can't identify straight up, right? They're very subtle accounts built over time that start spreading information that that uh, at some point looks close enough to to real to 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 make it worthwhile, but you know, I do think that that we need to be very cautious, right? You know, the old notion of don't talk to strangers uh is probably not as accurate in 2019 as it was in in a time where people walking up to you in the street and directly targeting you uh for conversation uh you know, would be a little more creepy, but you know we are in in a mass media uh, uh, era, and I've been uh, uh, thinking about that in my own context for a moment. That there are a lot of prominent people on Twitter, a lot of them in the education world, that um, you know I don't know personally, and do post a ton of things that I would say are things that I like, right? That are are are, are something that I would be an advocate for, and you know articles like this, and there have been a lot of interesting uh, exposés in 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 major national media about some of the subtleties of these campaigns, it does cause me pause, right? And, you know, that said, like, one of the things I have to balance that with is that, Wes, you and I would not be friends and and and, and podcast co-hosts minus social media, right? That's how we met. It, 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 it's true that minus a couple of face-to-face events where we ended up in the same time zone for a couple of minutes, you know, that's where we, we, we struck up more than, than, than just some likes and retweets. But the super bottom line is that, um, you know, like it, there's, a, there's a balance here somewhere, right? Yeah, like when we absolutely. talk about a tech correction here, one of the things that makes this complex, I think, is that, you know, how do we find that balance? Right. And I'm really glad you mentioned that. Like you should be having these conversations with your friends and family and family in particular. Right. Especially if you have perhaps older relatives. I think of my parents as an example of this. My mom is pretty engaged in social media. My dad is absolutely not. But, you know, if my mom uh, engaged in any sort of political or, I guess, cultural stuff beyond the stuff she usually shares, which is usually recipes and excellent quilting stuff. Uh, my mom is a quilt shop owner. She bought a quilt shop in retirement. So that that's her, both her hobby and now her business. Um, that's something that I, I think we need to be aware of that if you do have politically engaged relatives that may not be thinking of this from the standpoint of who is it that I'm engaging with and sharing, that's a really, really important lesson. 
Yeah. And Peggy George, who shout out to Peggy, is in our chat room tonight, uh, you know, commented on uh, just the chilling nature of the last paragraph, which is basically saying, you know, causing dissent, division, uh, divisiveness is, is a big goal. And the IRA is, right. if you're not familiar with it in this context, is not the Irish Republican Army. <clears throat> this is the Internet Research Agency, which is an extension of the Russian military. And so the last paragraph says the IRA generated more social media content in the year following 2016 than the year before it. They also moved their office into a bigger building with room to expand. Their work was never just about elections. Rather, the IRA encourages us to vilify our neighbor and amplify our differences because if we grow incapable of compromising, there can be no meaningful democracy. Russia has dug in for a long campaign. So far, we're helping them win. And, you know, to the first point about Sundar Pichai, leadership matters, right? And so I have been disappointed, and that's putting it mildly, to see how Facebook has responded to all of this. Uh, because I think they're really the, the, the number one target. You know, uh, Twitter is, is huge. And in terms of amplifying outlier content, both Twitter and YouTube are, are utilized to do that. But in terms of direct manipulation of, um, you know, like our, our parents and grandparents or, or whatever, you know, Facebook. And so I'm just I'm not impressed at all. Uh, it's good. I think that Twitter announced they weren't going to you know, accept money for political ads, but hopefully Sundar and some other leaders are go- in the tech world are really going to step up to this. Apple has less ability to because they're really not players in this arena, right? They're creating hardware and software for devices, but they're not uh, basically, fun- I mean, they get some money from, you know, Google searches and, but in terms of like surveillance capitalism, you know, that's not Apple's game. Um, so Tim Cook has less authority and influence, you know, within that. So anyway, I, I think this is hugely important. It is it has truly been a seismic change uh, in our global economy and in our lives to see the surveillance capitalism model, you know, make, you know, some companies, the, the largest uh, companies, the, the, the wealthiest companies in the world. And so I think it's important to track. It's a, these are important conversations for us to have. Uh, and it's also, you know, very important for us to not only consider what role regulation can play and should play, but we need to, we need to, I believe, look at organizations that are advocating for the kind of meaningful regulation, uh, that we believe would be helpful if, if we do indeed believe that, um, because that's how, you know, changes made in politics. It's, it's not just individuals on, on podcasts, as much as I'd love to say it's, you know, individuals on podcasts who are pontificating and ranting that lead to the decisive change. It's people that form interest groups that have money, that have lobbyists that, you know, are, are influencers in the political process. That's one of the big ways it changes. So. Right. Well, and let's also note too that like it's part of this too is civility, right? Like that, that, and I know that that seems maybe a bit uh, a pie in the sky or, or old fashioned, but part of the problem here is that the, they're taking advantage. Uh, those that are trying to divide us are taking advantage of the fact that, you know, people have strongly held beliefs are willing to go to the mat for them, but it's, it's, it's encouraging us to adopt that kind of unproductive tone that I think is really important. And, and, and frankly, I see this, you know, in context of, of, of my day job too, right? Like that there are legitimate disagreements in the world that people can have uh, about, you know, something that's professional and relatively cut and dry like education. And yet I think that we are somewhat encouraged in our society to get really fired up and puff up our feathers and 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 not just sit down and think of solutions, but rather draw lines and and, and create division. And, um, and that's, that's even amongst people that agree, right? That's not just a phenomenon of... Of, of of disagreement or or or, or discourse in, in in a negative way. It's also a phenomenon of 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 you know how we treat one another, how we uh, see one another, how we engage with one another, and that's got to be a part of this too. And you know one of the ways, and I'll tell you that uh, something that it, it's small, it's subtle, and I've been kind of encouraged by listening to a couple of podcasts of notices as well. You know, email hasn't died yet, right? Despite the fact that we've written this obituary dozens of times in the last thirty years, and 
And I've noticed that email can be a very uncivil place, right? And something that I practice personally is I say good morning to people in emails. I say thank you in emails. I write full sentences in emails. And I know that seems old fashioned, but you know, you may remember back to when you were first learning word processing or typing in the 80s and 90s. You had those big books that opened up vertically that had the form letters and stuff on it. That seems cheesy, I think, to look at in 2019. But if you're emailing someone about something you're concerned about um, and you don't know that person and you don't have a personable relationship with enough with them to just go, you know, a quick back and forth, um, you know, adopting those civil tones is really important. It's part of the reason why that I, I just really don't like people that are uh, using Twitter as 180 characters of trolling or cranking and cranking the word I just uh, described it way for the first place, right? But, and then, you know, like schools are terrible because I and no solutions, no conversation, no engagement, no dialogue, just negative, 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 negative. And, you know, there, there, there are solutions to problems, people, and we can work on those together. It's not going to happen if, you know, the most you can contribute to it is 280 characters of crank. And here's a here's a connection to uh, <clears throat> the classroom and thinking about students. You know, we need, I firmly believe, tools that let us take control of our feeds. In other words, instead of just like we would turn on the television just to watch whatever happens to come on, we shouldn't just turn on our computer, open Facebook, just watch, you know, whatever is going to come to us. We need to be using tools that let us decide, you know, what voices we want to, you know, listen to, who we don't want to, uh, we shouldn't, you know, it's not great to live in, in echo chambers, but, but, you know, we, we shouldn't just allow this opaque algorithm that, you know, faceless engineers, you know, probably in Silicon Valley have created. And so anyway, I think that's, that is an area in which we need to help students, um, you know, not only gain some experience with coding, uh, but also, you know, understand some of the immediacy and need that we have to address these issues and to have people figure out how can we do that. And with proprietary algorithms like Facebook that doesn't have an open API, I don't know the degree to which that's possible, but that is a puzzle we need to work on. And, and, uh, you know, this is the, this is the drum of media literacy, which you hear me beating frequently here on yep, the show. Absolutely so, true. All right. Hey, well, we're, we've talked a lot and not gotten into too many articles. So where do you want to, where do you want to go next? Sometimes that happens, right? So, yeah, that does. By the way, where can people find these links, Jason, if uh, well, they want to find them? You might need this tonight because we're going to probably get through three whole links by the time the show is over with based on our current pattern. But if you go to our website, edtechsr.com, you can also follow us on Twitter, by the way, at edtechsr, which we also will post show notes each week. You can find all the links there in our massive Google Doc O-Links. So this is a quick one that may turn not so quick. A happy birthday, Chrome operating system. You are now 10 years old. I remember Chrome OS being introduced and the CR, or no, C, yeah, CR4 which was the first uh, Chromebook that was released by Google. They sent out for free to a bunch of people. I know a couple people that were on the early list for CR48s. And I have to say, like, I know I'm Chrome OS guy on the show, and I am a, a, a 199.6% Chrome OS user, but you've come a long way, baby, and uh, I'm proud to call you my primary operating system. So happy birthday, Chrome OS. Very good. Uh, let's do some Apple ones. Um, yeah. I'll do the second one I put in. This is Bloomberg on November 29th. Apple reviews policies after Maps app gives Crimea to Russia. This is really interesting. Um, the companies, the tech companies have to comply, all companies do, with local laws, right, when they're in different countries. And so this is fascinating. I, I love geography. I love maps, cartography. Uh, one of my favorite books in the world, by the way, is The Fourth Part of the World. If you haven't read that book, great book. No. Um, oh, yeah, it is fantastic. Hey, maybe I know what to get you for Christmas now. Uh, so <clears throat> if you are not familiar, um, you know, Russia annexed the Crimea, which is, I think, north of the Black Sea. And, you know, that that happened towards the end of the Obama administration. And I think this I don't know what exactly in political science International politics parlance this would be, but you know, I think it, it, it might be an unprecedented annexation of, uh, of sovereign territory, you know, since maybe 1945 and the end of World War II. Um, anyway, it's, it's a big deal and it has, by most, um, 
you know, observers of, of international relations, it, it's, it's been contested like, hey, Russia, you shouldn't be able to do this. Well, Apple says in order to comply with local Russian laws, you know, they had to draw their lines differently and make the Crimea appear, you know, just like think of maps where the colors are the same for different countries. Crimea appear like it's not part of the Ukraine. It is part of Russia. Um, but they said outside of Russia, it's not. So isn't that bizarre in a technology world that in certain countries, when you're even visiting, the map is going to look different because local law says that it has. So I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. Um, what about that other Apple article? Well, something that happened uh, apparently two weeks ago, Apple has removed user ratings uh, uh, and reviews from their commercial website. So if you go to apple.com and go to the Apple store, they no longer feature uh, customer ratings for products. And according to The Verge, one of the reasons why this might have been the case is because the uh, lightning to headphone adapter, which was of some controversy when Apple got rid of the headphone port on iPhones apparently uh, is quite uh, was quite uh, uh, vilified by customer reviewers uh, that but although that's been around for a while so I'm not sure why that necessarily might have precipitated the action I will say there's been a lot I mean there is we've been talking about this in uh, since the beginning of our podcast for sure and certainly this has been a discussion in major technology podcasts you know there's the regular Apple death watch that tends to occur when people look at uh, things that are signed you know, the Apple's pending doom is near and then you know the next quarter they sell more iPhones than they've ever sold, but the thing I would say is that I do think it is a bad sign when you start taking user voice out of reviews um, on your website, and you know, there was a lot of controversy over the MacBook's uh, butterfly keyboard. We've talked about that here in the podcast in the past. Uh, They have a new keyboard design, which apparently not everyone's totally happy with, and yada, 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 but I did find it interesting that Apple has gone in the direction of taking user reviews for products off their website. So it doesn't look like the App Store is that way. Is that just their public Apple.com website? Right, just just the hardware. Well, no. So wait, when you say you know, you said apps. Because like I just pulled up the App Store, pulled up an app, and you know, there's still ratings and reviews there. So. Yeah, yeah, apps apps are still uh, uh, have user ratings, but this is Apple.com's you know hardware uh, hard, hardware sales online. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, let's see. Here's a quick security one. We got several under security. Um, this was from the GitHub blog on November 14th, announcing GitHub Security Lab, securing the world's code together. Um, I have not personally used, used GitHub. In fact, our daughter, um, just finished her first, this is our youngest 16 year old, her, uh, first Python class. And, uh, a friend of mine, uh, teaches that and, you know, he, it's, it was awesome. He used GitHub education sort of, at, not sort of as like the learning management system for the ways that they exchanged all of their, um, you know, assignments. And it was just very cool. And so if you don't know, GitHub is one of the most important platforms for coders and for coding projects, not only open source projects, but other ones as well. And, <clears throat> you know, there's, there are big issues with security vulnerabilities. And, and, you know, if you've heard the term zero day, you know, that, that's an exploit that there's, there's no warning for, that there's not a patch for, that people are able to exploit and these things exist and black hat hackers make lots of money, you know, selling these on the dark web. And then there are these things called, you know, uh, bug bounties, which is, this is so interesting, right? Because it sounds like the old West and we're, you know, hiring these, you know, desperados to, to go in and these hired guns to, you know, clean things up. But it, this is the world that we're living in now digitally. Uh, so, so bug bounties are, uh, payments that are available to a, a white hat hacker, somebody who's hacking for good, um, to say, Hey, I, f- I found a bug in, you know, this version of, of Microsoft Word or whatever. And then when they let the company know, they, they receive money and then the company patches the vulnerability and it's fixed. Well, open source is a different environment in terms of, you know, not having a single company generally that is like riding herd over it and, and, you know, their reputation, uh, rides on it. There's really important 
projects, you know, Apache, I think still drives over half of the web servers, uh, you know, on the internet. And it's a, Apache is a free and open source project, you know, WordPress. I don't know the current statistic, but I, again, I think it's over 50% of websites on, on the web run on WordPress, which is open source. So they have announced what they call a security lab. And so they're going to try, because sometimes it can take over a month for an identified vulnerability on an open source platform to be patched. And so they are creating this security lab uh, with bug bounties and incentives to basically try and get open source tools specifically patched and fixed quicker so that folks will not be able to exploit them. So anyway, there's uh, different connections there. And and certainly one of them would be if you are teaching programming or you know someone who is, uh, this would be more at probably a high school or college level. You know, GitHub is something important for your students to know about and use. And, hey, it happens to have an educational portal that is free and you can use that to, you know, have students practice. So, Jason, uh, are you going to be sub uh, submitting your, you know, sort of similar thousand, you know, bug bounties on various platforms in the year? Or or has the email for, for your day job, you know, taken a little more of your time recently? Yeah, sadly, the email is, is a little more on the top of my list, although I'll admit, like, I, I, a couple of times I've tried to teach myself some deeper coding stuff because I think that would be kind of fun to chase down bugs, to be honest. Like, that seems like nerdy good times to me. So, sadly, not part of that strategy. But I think that's, that, that's an interesting, certainly interesting development. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, I like this notion that communities are banding together to utilize their skills to make the web and the internet a safer place. I think that notion is pretty great. So, other security articles. Uh, this one is a really interesting one. I'm curious to hear your opinion about this one. Uh, the Register and, and thousands of other websites noted this. This, this article is from November 29th that apparently the .org uh, top-level domains, so websites that are so-and-so.org, that that uh, registry is being purchased by a private equity company. And it's led to all sorts of, of, of conversation because part of what is apparently happening here is there's some threat that the private equity company will either, A, dramatically increase prices to renew a .org domain, right, which is not a, a, a super great idea, um, especially for those that utilize that, that are nonprofit organizations, including my own uh, organization's day job, and then the other organizations I work with all have .orgs. But part of the debate that's going back and forth here, and to be honest, I can't really laser focus enough on on, on where this is going, but the ICANN, which is what currently manages the .org domain, says that one of the reasons why they're going in this direction is that supposedly that there's going to be a reckoning for websites that are .orgs that are not organizations. So .coms have taken .orgs because the .com is not available, um, would then have to prove that they are an organization. I'm not sure organization uh, does kind of uh, uh, seem like it's non-profit, in nature, although you can have an organization, to, to be frank, the, 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 the one I can think of that is definitely not a, a, a non-commercial enterprise is, is the Trump organization. That's what they call the companies, the Trump organization. And you know, that notion that being an organization is non-commercial is interesting. But if you are managing a series of domains, either for your school or for nonprofits or just you have a collection of .orgs, you should keep an eye on this because I do think it's kind of gross if it ends up that the nonprofit nature of top-level domains to this point has, has been largely a non-commercial pursuit, uh, which has kept domain name registration relatively inexpensive, except for people that are like domain trolls that sit on them for a long time waiting to increase the price. I do think that would substantially increase the price of, of owning a dot something or another. So my main blog, Speed of Creativity, is speedofcreativity.org. So yeah. I would certainly be, you know, interested in that. And one of the things that makes me wonder is, oh, should I, you know, run out and register for, you know, multiple years and, you know, try to lock something in? The article talks about, you know, basically ICANN, which is the the internet, you know, I think overseeing body of of registry and domains, has done some studies showing that. Uh, it's a highly competitive and fluid market and it's highly unlikely, you know, that the price would be jacked up in that way because people can, you know, shift right. over. But, but get this. It says, um, the average size of the 1000 plus new internet extensions added to the internet in the past six years is 2500 domains. 
Org is 4,000 times larger with 10 million names. So there wow. are 10 million domains that are .org domains. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting to see this happen. I, I, I guess it, you know, I would, we, we can pivot and move. I, I've, I've watched some different, uh, bloggers who've been in the game for a while, you know, make some shifts. Will Richardson a number of years ago switched over from his web blog ed, which he was one of the first educational, you know, real popular bloggers out there. And he moved over, I think to his, I think it's willrichardson.com. Um, you know, I have westfriar.com registered. I've thought about that. I think if you're starting a blog or if you listen to, you know, marketers, they're going to tell you for a, a personal professional blog, it's better to brand that with your name than it is to have some, you know, weird different, um, you know, title. So I don't know. I like moving at the speed of creativity. I think that's really cool. I don't want, you know, I'm planning to stick with that, but uh, it's a, it is a dynamic world. I, I worked over the holiday a little bit on <clears throat> some web archival for a, 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 a deceased friend, Bob Sprankle. And, you know, that it's just kind of crazy. Like what someone's digital legacy is going to be if, you know, somebody doesn't renew their domains or, you know, update their, you know, WordPress sites or, or whatever. And actually, I have a segue to that uh, for another article that regards Twitter. I don't know if you saw this, Jason. I put this under under miscellaneous. Uh, this is from The Verge on November 26th. Twitter will remove inactive accounts and free up usernames in December. So one of the, the things, this is going to be a big deal. So if you haven't logged into your twi- to a Twitter account in the last six months, it may go away, like somebody else may take it over. And for our friends and family or just other people uh, out there in the world who have set up a Twitter account, um, you know, I'm thinking of Bob Sprankle. I, I don't know what his, his, his password is. I have, uh, you know, I have access to a lot of his content that he shared with me prior to his death, but uh, his, his username is going to go away. According to this, they haven't really decided how they're going to handle that kind of situation. Uh, you know, Facebook has responded to this. We've talked, I think, some some on the show about how this kind of, you know, works and why it's important to share your passwords with your family. And, and in terms of like, you know, Apple and, and Apple IDs are not going to give that to you if you don't have access to that password. Um, so anyway, it, it, it may be the case that you, you want to try and archive some things that, um, you know, and I think tools with Twitter, I think, can only get like maybe 2,500 tweets, which sounds like a lot, but... There may be more on certain accounts. Um, I think this may also, I don't know what, what all the motivation for this is. I will say, well, you know, the rules as they exist now are not working well for disinformation and the weaponization of social media. I wonder what kinds of rules are going to need to change, even with respect to YouTube and letting anybody upload an unlimited quantity of, of, uh, uh, a video uh, with Twitter, anybody can set up an unlimited number of accounts, right? As long as you have different email addresses and you can even, you know, game that with, uh, with Facebook, if you use, or sorry, with Google, if you use that plus trick. So if your username, you can do username, the character plus and something else at gmail.com that's treated at, as by Twitter as a separate and different email account. So anyway, I thought that was, that was interesting. And, uh, you know, maybe something to think about if you've got, and I do, I've got a number of Twitter accounts, you know, that I set up over the years. Uh, it's probably good to prune those because I don't use them all. Um, but uh, Peggy's asking in the chat, do you lose your content if .org goes away? Can't you just change it to .com? Um, yeah, that's all about how you have your registration set up and your hosting set up. And this is this is important things for, you know, students and, and others to understand. So you register a domain with a with a registrar, maybe for like, you know, 12 bucks a year or, or sometimes more. And what that does is it lets you point that domain to an IP address where your content is. So if you're using a free platform like Google Sites or Blogger, then you point it to the addresses that that they provide and then you have your content over there on, you know, Google. In the case of WordPress, if you're running it yourself, you can you can point it to their servers on wordpress.com, but if you run it yourself as I have a whole slew of sites, then you have to pay a hosting company and you put that address into the registration portal. And then the words that people type in, you know, get directed to the IP address that that you own. So uh, you would just need to make sure you have your content backed up 
and then you, you know, can port it and, and you can do that actually if you have whatever hosting company you have, you'll just, you know, change the registration. You can have multiple domains going. So like my West, well, my WesleyFryer.com, whatever I registered that a long time ago, it goes to WestFryer.com and that's where all the, the content is there. So Jason, will this, any of this affect you as far as .org domain changes and uh, Twitter ID, user IDs going away if they haven't been used for six months? Or do you, can you think of any ways this will impact? Sure. Well, I mean, I, we are keeping an eye on this at work because we are a .org. We do own the .com, .com and .net and then a, a couple of other domains. I think we have maybe 10 or 12 domains in our portfolio, some of which are being used and some are not. But, you know, part of that is because, and this is a very long story, that, you know, our original name had been uh, utilized by another organization, even though we were named in state law and they had no rights to it. But um, we had to change our name officially to do that. Very long story from 2010. But the the other thing that that is also a factor here is that if the price does go up substantially, and and I and I the, the debate is is has been uh, back and forth about whether or not that might be a strategy of those that have picked up the .org registration uh, process or not. That the bottom line is that would, would negatively impact a number of organizations I work with. But I guess the let me make one comment about Twitter. I have a question back for you, Wes. Uh, two domain or two Twitter names that I've always really wanted. One of which is active, and one of which is not. I would love to be at Jason on Twitter. I would much prefer. That. I mean, I like Tech Savvy Teach, and I, I've made a name of that for myself. Uh, I've relocated that broad notion to the the NCCE organization I work with. So there are other Tech Savvy teachers, and technically I'm the Tech Savvy administrator now at NCCE, right? So, but I've had this. Uh, 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 I've had techsavvyteacher.com for 15 years now, and then this has been my Twitter handle for the last 10. Um, I used to have Knifer, which is my last name, but people couldn't spell it, so that was a little bit awkward. But at Jason is Jason Kalkanakis. He's not going to give that up. The guy tweets a thousand times a day. At Knife, though, so N-E-I-F, which is what kids called me, and well, it's what my friends called me in high school. It's what kids called me when I was a teacher, um, is owned by someone who has tweeted seven times since 2010, and I'm guessing it's an inactive account. I, I, I don't know what it will be like to grab these Twitter names, but if I could grab .Knife, I, or at knife, I think I would probably do it. And I'm not entirely sure if I'd make that my main Twitter handle, uh, you know, maybe relocate tech savvy teach to, to someone else as part of NCCE. But, um, you know, and it's, I, I only have 7,300 Twitter followers. I know that probably sounds like a lot of people are just getting started. I don't have your numbers, Wes. And to be honest, I've been stuck at 7,300 for about two years now. Like I gain some and I lose some and it stays about 7,300. I think maybe that's just my number, right? But uh, it would be pretty great to be you know, at knife. So, and you may have noticed, I don't know if you see my Twitter handle, I had a student tweet at me last week and put a little knife icon in the tweet. And I've adopted that as part of my name now, because I think it's pretty funny. So, <laughs> that is. Well, yeah. something people need to know, and not everybody does for Twitter, you can change your username for your channel. Like now, you know, if it's available, right. you don't have to set up a different, if you want a new user name, you don't have to set up a separate account. Some people will do that. And I'm not, I don't, I don't know how many times that happens because they're not aware of it that you can just right. change it. But that way, you know, all of your, your likes, all your followers, all your lists, all of that stuff stays the same. You just change it. So it reminds me a little bit of like registration, you know, for college or something where, you know, at midnight tonight, you know, all sophomores or anyway, Mark, I think this is how it works for our kids. Like, you know, different, like my, our son's a senior. So he's getting to register earlier and, and sort of goes down the food chain. But anyway, our daughter just registered for spring classes, uh, you know, and I guess our son did as well um, you know, <coughs> in the last month or so. And it was an online process. And so I think if there were sections that you were really, you know, that were you know, hotly contested and when whatever, you know, you would you would get on there quick to to try to get in. So I don't know. I don't know if this will be something that will be rolled out uh, gradually or if they're just going to flip a switch and every you know Twitter account that hadn't been logged in. Uh, but that it's it that's something to think about because. Uh, yeah, the shorter, the shorter the, the, uh, you know, user ID or, or whatever, the, the better it is. So I, I think you should go for knife. You got my vote for that. There you go. So. Okay, we're gonna get through a total of like six links. Uh, <laughs> not careful here. Apparently, we we've got some things of inspired discussion. Oh, actually, the question I want to ask you, Wes, 
So here we are in 2019, right? And it used to be that it's .com or nothing, right? That's what people like for the domain. And then .orgs and .nets became more popular as .coms got populated. Do you think it's a problem in 2019 to have one of the 2,500 top-level domains? There is anything from .space to .cloud. There's a .wtf. There's a .dot. Uh, you know, there's .dots. Lots of stuff. .dot limo. Um, do you think it's a problem for someone in a professional context or really any context to utilize one of the non-standard top-level domains? I don't think so, although I haven't, I haven't looked into it. I mean, one thing I would think of is filtering, right? And so are there certain domains? I mean, there's some some schools I've heard of that, that if they just block China, you know, they block, you know, countries as far as like there's a lot of malware and things like that. Um, so if you're using a top level domain and maybe it's because it's a play on words or something like that, that the, that the, uh, you know, two letter acronym after the, the ending period is, is something that you want to, you know, spell something with or whatever. I mean, there, there could potentially be some filtering issues, but I, I don't think so. I, it, it doesn't to me, you know, it seems as natural to put in a dot us or, you know, some other kind of, of domain, um, you know, Marketers are probably going to still tell you, yeah, you want to you want to go with the stock dot coms and and those sorts of things, but uh, I I don't think functionally I don't think it makes that much of a difference. And actually, you reminded me we were talking earlier um, about I don't know if it was the article. Uh, if if anybody at your school is still telling people, hey, look, if it's a dot gov or a dot edu, then that's got to be true. I mean, you know the. Yeah, we, wow. we cannot just, you know, base the validity of content. I mean, that is such a an old web, almost 1.0, you know, way of looking at validation and, and uh, determining, you know, authenticity or whatever. So I think it's important to attend to that and to look at that. Uh, one of the places that it's really tricky sometimes is people will register something really close so that there'll be a misspelling or if mm-hmm. people are fish doing phishing attacks and they're trying to get you to click on something. Uh, you know, they can make the link that it goes to different. So it could say something at Google.com, but when you click on it, it's actually going to an IP address or, or it's going to something else. So, but I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. Are you, are you in a position where you're giving any counsel to folks these days about, you know, registering a domain name for I, the first I'm- time and how they do that? I'm not. And in fact, I think the the new domains are fun, right? Like I, I do own a couple of them. I, I, I've always liked the notion of space. And so, um, uh, when, when I, if I were to create a, uh, like a company now that talked about a place online to put stuff or, or, or learning space or teaching dot space or anything like that. So like this dot space domain is pretty cool, not because of outer space, but because of space, right? But you know, dot cloud, dot limo, dot Paris, dot all these ones. I think they're fun. And as long as you know, I, I think your word of, 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 of caution is important, Wes, that understand that, you know, uh, you should be doing due diligence uh, on websites just because this is Amazon.limo doesn't mean it's Amazon's new limo service, right? Um, you know, it could be something nefarious and, and not great, then yeah, definitely keep an eye on that. But yeah, I think that's a, a, an important piece of that. So. All right. Well, we have seven minutes left, and I feel like we've talked about negative four links at this point. So apparently we're just picking them here to, to, to do good discussion. Is there anything else we absolutely need to cover tonight? You know, I am having a, uh, not my usual iPad here, and I am scrambling to get my stupid links to come up. So now I'll scroll down through pages. Here we go. Get back to where we were at. Um, let's see. Uh, how about we did Apple... Uh, what about the Stadia? Do you want to mention? That's kind sure, of yeah. Just because if you haven't heard of it, it's an interesting phenomenon. Stadia is Google's game streaming platform, and the idea is is that you can grab a Chrome Crash, a Chromecast Ultra, which is their 4K uh, Chromecast device, plug it into the back of a television, and then grab a Stadia controller, which looks like a typical console game controller, and then stream games from the Internet to your television. It also works on Chromebooks. I believe they're working on something for Macs and PCs. Early reviews are not great, 
right? Uh, because it involves uh, a lot of leg or a lot of leg in, in controller leg. So you know, because you're actually what you're doing is you're sending a controller uh, a, a, a command through the internet to where the game is being hosted on a server, and then it comes back to you to see on the screen. And apparently, it's improved dramatically in just the first couple of weeks as they've rolled this out more aggressively. But uh, a lot of people think this is the future of gaming. A lot of people think this is a terrible, awful idea. So if you're not aware of Stadia, I'd keep an eye on this. I also think it's an interesting phenomenon when it comes to classrooms as well, because there might be heavy, graphically intensive operations that could uh, really just work on a TV, right? Uh, you could imagine for a moment a keyboard and a mouse hooked up to the internet, a, a, a Chromecast-like device, and you could stream you know, Android or Chrome OS or Windows or Mac to a television without the CPU locally. That's the way we used to do computing way back in the day, right? There's been a little bit of that with uh, terminal servers and, and so-called dummy terminals, but I think it's something to keep an eye on if you're tech savvy. Here, here's a couple other ones that are kind of quick, and some of these are, are fun and positive. Uh, speaking of validating you know, headlines. When I saw this, I was like, is this for real? Because I didn't recognize the domain. And then I found, you know, the same article on the BBC. So, all right, I guess it's for real. Uh, this is BBC News, November 27th. Russian cows get VR headsets to, quote, reduce anxiety. So they have done studies to show these cows literally are more relaxed. The milk, I guess, is better. And they're putting VR headsets on cows, like moo cows at the farm. So that's a pretty wild article. I think I might actually use that as a, a wonderling to show to my kids. Because what, what does that mean for our perception of reality, right? I mean, lots of people bemoaning screens, but, you know, to what degree are we going to put on some kind of VR headset because we want to, you know, take be, be more uh, mindful and, you know, less stressed? It's, that's wild. Um, another one is... Um, under the title of AI, this is from MIT Technology Review on November 19th. Scientists have found 142 more ancient etchings in Peru. Now AI will speed up the hunt. Ancient etchings is actually not a great uh, little title for that. So think of the Nazca lines and these huge, um, you know, things are like, okay, did the ancient Inca or whoever was living in, in Peru, um, did they... <clears throat> Like, do they have contact with aliens? Is that why they were, you know, drawing these things that are massive that you can only see if you're flying or, you know, even from space? Um, they're using artificial intelligence to do pattern recognition to find these things. Um, and so there's all these different uh, mysterious sand symbols and things. And so uh, they're hard to find. The, the lines have been damaged, floods, roads, urban expansion. And so IBM Research is now deploying deep learning algorithms to speed up the hunt using their cloud platform to stitch together massive amounts of geospatial data. So it's basically satellite data that's analyzing the Earth and it's finding these human created shapes that aren't, you know, naturally occurring. Wild. I think that's that was that's kind of cool. Um, and then one more, if my refresh is going to work, which it may not. Ugh, sorry. I, I just need to get some more screens. How, how many screens would you have at your disposal there, Jason, if you if you needed them tonight? Oh, if I needed them tonight, doesn't. Yeah. Let's, yeah. See, I'm, I'm, that's not going to help anyone, right? We have such a digital divide here in the, in the <laughs> Oklahoma. I'm at such a disadvantage tonight. Okay, here we go. Scrolling fast. Uh, the last one I wanted to do was, um, not the Russian cows. Oh, Hong Kong. Uh, this is from South China Morning Post, November 25th. Hong Kong elections pro-democracy camp wins 17 out of 18 districts while the city leader says she will reflect on the result. Um, that was a, you know, what a week, a week, well, November 25th. So about a, about a week ago, uh, we've talked about it on the show, what's been happening so many different levels here in China with surveillance, with facial recognition. Um, you know, they've, they're, they've been catapulting towards a future of universal surveillance and universal facial recognition, you know, in, in their country. Hong Kong has been treated differently. They've been protesting for a variety of things. Uh, anyway, they just had elections and part of what the students had done in these protests was, you know, put masks on to protect themselves from facial recognition. Anyway, this was a positive uh, outcome. There were a lot of folks who were part of pro-democracy and not part of the old guard. And so 
you know, the fact that they had this election and people were ousted, uh, I think is very positive. And, you know, again, amidst all the media and what we hear with mainstream, like the, this is an important topic and issue to be tracking with students. And we may not be hearing as much about Hong Kong, but it's something to, you know, go into your Google news reader, news.google.com, put in the words Hong Kong, see what the latest headlines are. You know, you don't have to wait for whatever your local mainstream media uh, you know, outlet is to cover something. You can go ahead and check out that kind of, of a source. And the, the technology connections here are, you know, it was the encrypted uh, messaging apps, I think Telegram and uh, some others that, you know, were used to organize and, you know, hopefully we're not going to face something similar in the United States where we're going to, you know, be fearing our government surveilling, you know, college students um, who are, you know, saying things that were, are viewed as being, you know, really threatening, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a, it's a pretty, you know, fascinating article and a situation to follow. So. Absolutely. Well, it looks like we're at the top of the hour, Wes. Let's do our Geeks of the Week. Would you like to start us off? I will. Uh, so two of them. Uh, I had to find a 64-bit what-you-see-is-what-you-get webpage editor because uh, I was telling you about this Bob Sprankle, Bob Sprankle you know, project and, and some of his archive content. Anyway, I found one uh, that's free, and it's called Blue Griffin, uh, B-L-U-E-G-R-I-F-F-O-N. And so, yes, if you need to make a simple web page and don't want to just code it by hand, which I didn't want to do, um, that worked. And why did I have to do that? It's because my Mac has been updated to the latest operating system, uh, which is Catalina and it's, uh, Mac OS 10.15. And so that means older 32 bit applications will not run at all. And you could set up an emulation environment and whatever, but yeah, I had to do that recently. And then I <clears throat> just ran across this one today. Um, I'm really interested in this framework that Scott McLeod and, uh, Julie Graber, I think, co-authored called The Four Shifts. We may actually read that book at school as a book study. And Richard Byrne, who has the wonderful free tech tools for educators, has a podcast that's now in episode six. It's called the Practical Ed Tech Podcast. And episode six features an interview with Dr. Scott McLeod. So that's on my listening queue in Pocket Casts. And I am sure that that will be fantastic because both those guys are really smart and have lots of great things to say about educational technology and the use of it in the classroom. How about you, Jason? Do you have a Geek of the Week tonight? I do, uh, and I, I'm su surprised that, that this has been so wondrous to me, but I recently was sent a link when I was in the uh, Play Store, which is Google's uh, App Store on Android, and it said, vote for the App of the Year Awards. It's like, well, I'm a voter. Let's do that, right? So they said one of the apps that was up for App of the Year was the Post-it Note app, and I'm like, there is no way in 2019 that there's something that is Post-it Note related that could be in any way interesting to me, right? There's been posted-like apps with widgets on Android since the beginning. There have been posted-like apps on Mac OS and on Windows and even on Chrome OS. There's nothing in the space that can surprise me. I was stunned by how great the Posted Note app is. And I can't really show you this that well. And if you are listening um, on audio, uh, that's a shame because I'm going to show off a little bit about what it does. But I'm a big Posted Note guy. I have a screen. Uh, I'm sorry, I have a big wall at work that I work Work on that we 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 do Kaban style um, uh, to do lists and stuff and and it's 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 the way I like to visualize uh, 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 projects and stuff. Wait, define Kaban style. It's uh, it's it's a it's an organizational technique where you have all the tasks up in various lists so that you can move them across the way when they get done. It's a visual way to see kind of tasks that are ahead of you. And so the way this works is that you open the camera and you scan a big thing of Post-it notes, right? That that's on a wall or on a desk. It not only scans them individually. Let's see if I can be dexterous enough to do this. You can move. You can move them. Or, or, I don't know if I'm gonna pull this off backwards. You can move them around like those are movable, right? And you can click on them and look at the individual posted notes. Even though these notes were not in any way, you know, like uh, uh, digital. I'm not able to do this. They're, they were not. Um, 
Uh, they were not square with one another. It turns them into individual little post-it note scans that you can save to various locations, text to someone, add to a document. So you're saying you take a picture of paper that's on and the wall, and then it's wall. making those digital versions. Right, yeah. Like, so that these are individual post-it notes that I scanned in one, like, this is what the scan looked like, right? It's just a random scan, and then you can actually, I'm not going to be able to pull this one off backwards, right? But you can actually Come on. There we go. Yeah, look at this. I'm moving it around. Like, that's the posted note, right? But I can digitally move it around. So, uh, so awesome. I love it. I cannot believe that Post-it in 2019 created an app that created wonder in me. But the Post-it app available both iOS and Android. And it got my vote for Android app of the year. And Peggy is sharing a Geek of the Week as well, and it is podcharts.co. She says it ranks podcasts in tons of different categories, so there you go. We'll include that one in our show notes as well. Wes, where can people find you on the Internet? Twitter, W. Fryer, my blog, speedofcreativity.org, my curriculum site for fifth and sixth grade media and digital literacy, mdtech. .cassidy.org. How about you, Jason? I am at Tech Savvy Teach, potentially at Knife, uh, on Twitter. Um, I blog with the Northwest Council for Computer Education, blog.ncc.org. And shout out to my uh, uh, regular organization, the Montana Digital Academy, the State Virtual School of Montana, montanadigitalacademy.org. But this here isn't me. This is us. This is the web. Uh, this is the web. This is the ed- This is the web. <laughs> the web. This is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a once-a-week podcast that takes a look at technology headlines and shoots them through an educational prism. We shoot usually on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central. I think it's, I know, 3 a.m. UTC or something, which is actually something you know, I might be broadcasting from uh, here in a couple of weeks as I'm traveling internationally for the second half of December. Uh, if you can't join us live, and please do. We, we love having an audience. We love taking uh, uh, questions from the audience. P- shout out to Peggy George joining us almost every week to be kind of our audience cheer person. But if you can't, go to anywhere finer podcasts are aggregated. It includes the iTunes, Stitcher, uh, uh, any of the, the Android apps uh, have the EdTech Situation Room, or you can go to our website, edtechsr.com, and download either little tiny versions of the MP3 or go to the YouTube channel. Until next time, stay savvy, stay safe, and we encourage you to be a EdTech superstar.